0: And with that, our speaker this evening is Willie from the Bethel Group. Thank you, Ed. My name is Willie, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, my sobriety date is August 26th of 1986 at 1130 on a Friday. I just happen to remember that. It doesn't mean difference to anybody else, but to me it means a whole lot. My life changed that night from drinking to being sober. I didn't know which way I was going in sobriety. I didn't know I could make it. All I knew about AA, my ex-wife was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she was my damn problem. And if this dizzy broad ever got sober, my life would be wonderful. Well, after about years and years of going to rehabs and a lot of meetings, taking her to meetings, this woman finally got sober at the third trip at Laurel Recovery down in the Laurel. And I seen her change. I seen a change in this woman when she came out the th- uh, third time. Something happened. I don't know what it was, but something happened. I found out later she had worked the steps and got a sponsor, something different. But my life changed. I knew she was safe, and I took off like a bird. I could drink and have a good time, didn't have to worry about her. And I'm here to tell you the AA really worked in her life. First year of sobriety, she left. Her second year, she filed for divorce. So if you're having a problem, AA will take care of all these problems. It did mine. But what she did, as I look back in my sobriety, that she actually put the stones way I knew where to walk on the water. Because had I had not taken her to meetings and had not been introduced to AA, even going to the meetings, drinking, that was my forte. You know, because I didn't have a problem, was her. But it seemed like I knew what to do when the time came. I picked the phone up and called a place and... Uh, Unity Place over here in Bowie. And my ex-wife then, wife at the time, she started al on there when she got in. So I had that phone number there, and I called. And there was an old guy that passed away now named Jesse, just an old, rough guy. And if you ever seen his face, his face told his drunk a lot He didn't have to explain what he'd done. You knew what he'd done. And the first time I met him at the meeting... He came in with a shirt half-buttoned up, you know, Mr. hole, and it was wrinkled, and he had a beard and long hair and a cigarette with ashes about two foot long. And I looked at him, I said, boy, that poor bastard, he'll never make it. And I asked him, I said, man, you must be new. He said, no, I got two and a half years. And I said, wow. He said, don't I look nice? <laughs> I said, <laughs> Then he said, do you want what I have? And I said, no, no, thank you. <laughs> but we became good friends. Jesse was a good man. But he had a heart of gold. really helped a lot of drunks in, in, in our buoy until he passed away. But when you looked at him, you knew he had a rough life of drinking. I mean, he was a drinker. But anyway, my story, I started out as a young kid. When you, Ed said he named us Outright Mental Defective Group. You know, that's the way I felt before I drank. And then when I drank, I felt like I fit. Because I always felt like I was a little weird. I was a little short for my height. You know, I was growing up. but never really grew like I thought I was going to grow. And I was a lonely kid, but by myself. I only had one child in that family. It was me. And everything, everything that went wrong with that house was my fault. And I don't know why. And I read Dennis the Menace thing today. It was a little cute cartoon in the paper. He's praying with his friend Joey. And they're on his knees. And he's saying, God... Why is everything I do that's nice, it's always naughty? And that's just like my idea. What I thought was nice always got me in trouble. And he kind of told my little story this morning. But as I grew up, I always felt I was, not felt, but I I just felt like I never fit in school, so I skipped school a lot. Not that I, I enjoy school, but I just could not function. I could not, when they could add two and two, I was back on zero and zero. It seemed like I was four steps behind everybody throughout my life. And I had a lot of problems growing up. My father died when I was like four years old, so my mother raised me two jobs. So she worked two jobs, and I was running the streets as a four- or five-year-old. And I got a little bit of trouble that they told me, but the trouble I got in wasn't trouble for me. It was like I was just playing around in the neighborhood. You know, you're breaking windows, breaking houses, and you steal. And they, but to me, that wasn't – they were just doing normal things, you know. And I, I paid a price for that. I was sitting in an orphanage. And the story goes that if you ever watch the old uh, Hogan's Hero and you got Sergeant Schultz, this was a Catholic orphanage because I was raised Catholic, and uh, the the nun that was the mean one was Mother St. George. I can still picture her face. She looked like a man. She had chin whiskers and teeth that were spaced like four, and she... She carried a goddamn yardstick made out of solid oak. It was 36 inches long, an inch square, perfect. And she carried it on her shoulder like that. And I used to call her the German soldier because she'd walk down the hallway. Anybody out of line, you got to swat. And I remember just being a little kid. She used to really piss me off. You know, I seemed like I was always getting beat. And when I always wanted something, I don't know, alcoholics can do this. We can play the game beautiful, even as a child. And I remember telling her I'd be good and I'd be dead. And she'd look at me, really, and she'd bend down, and I'd punch her right in the goddamn mouth. And I'd run. I could never outrun that thirty-six inches. I could get thirty-five, but that last inch would crack me upside the head. And you know, I thought I would learn. The kids would say, you know, Willie, don't do that. And One day I'm going to beat that stick, you know, one day, and I never did. So my life was started off like that, and then getting out of the orphanage, we moved down here to uh, D.C. when I was about 11 years old, and I felt odd because I was in different schools, you know, coming out of an orphanage and into a confined area. My recreation in the orphanage was a second floor porch. It was a wired porch. I would go out on the porch and they would lock the door so I couldn't jump. And that was my recreation period. Everybody else went outside, but I had the porch. So. And I felt comfortable there. I felt lonely, but you know, I figured I ain't going to get in no trouble and I won't get beat. And that's the way I took that. And uh, So when we moved down here, I had a little bit more freedom. And as I look back, it was very shy. I went to school and I was very shy. I didn't want to socialize with nobody. I just wanted to duck and hide. It's like when we first come into AA, you want to be a flower on the wall in the back room behind the column. Then I met a couple of young kids that, when I went to junior high school, seemed like they were pretty open and, you know, get a little bit wilder when you're a teenager. And uh, there were three of us that ran together, and their family drank. Now, my family, I don't think, was uh, an alcoholic family. There was a lot of arguments when my mother remarried. You know, she was a little drinker, drank a lot of wine back in them days. And uh, I always say that our family was dysfunctional before it was popular today. You know, today it's popular to be dysfunctional. Yeah, but we had that back in the 40s, for God's sakes. And uh, it was just a normal thing, you know what I mean? If you didn't get beat once a week, you know, shit, the family wasn't right. <laughs> you know? And I met this one kid named Charlie in junior high school, and we kind of gravitated because he felt the same way I did, and know? Uh, his parents drank a lot, so we went over to his house and we would steal a beer every now and then, drink a half a beer. I thought we were cool little teenagers. <clears throat> my mother worked a night shift, my dad worked a night shift, so I had the house from 3 in the afternoon to 11 at night, every night. And so one day we met these girls in school and we were kind of, you know, scared about meeting girls. You know, you, we were brave in the corner, but when we get out on the floor to dance, we couldn't do nothing. So one night we invited these young girls over to the house and man, I remember being so damn scared because this was the prettiest girl in school that I thought, and I didn't know what to do. And a friend of Charlie said, you know, we're going to go to the liquor store. It was 11th of Pennsylvania Avenue, Southeast. And there used to be a guy in a brown coat with that button that you hear about, the real drunk, would have rolled up, and it's summertime. And he stunk. But he was the guy that could get our alcohol. So we got a pint of Paul Jones whiskey, two Cokes, and we gave him a taste of that whiskey with a white paper cup years ago they used to give you a paper cup when you bought a pint and we poured it for him and that poor guy shook half of it out before he drank it and I said you know I'm never going to be like that clown and I didn't realize that was my future starting that night and we took that whiskey home to my parents house and the girls came we had the music on the 45 records you know I'm dating myself now 45 records You know, we were playing all these old time songs from the 50's And I took that whiskey because I was so nervous. And I took the biggest gulp I did in my life, and I thought I was damn going to die. I mean, it went down and it burned. My nose was on fire, and it came up through the nose. And I took a Coke and chased it down. And I thought about 30 seconds later, I have arrived. Man, I stood up, wiped my nose, got on one knee, and asked that girl to dance. I can't dance today. But I sure give a hell that night. And you know, the, the the system was built in me. My hand went up, the other hand went down. You got to hang on to something when you dance. And we danced, and man, the words came out of me like I was in a damn movie. Oh man, what a night. Nothing happened, but the fantasy began. What did, was in that bottle that made me feel that daggone good? And I could not wait till next Friday to do it over again. And we didn't have money back in the 50s, so we stayed, saved all our lunch money. 35 cents a day I got. Three of us would save that $0.35 cents a day, and we would steal lunches in school because we had to eat. So we would pool that money, and every Friday was the same routine, and then we'd do it Saturday. And it became my life to do that. Late, I quit school because I uh, got in trouble and went to uh, high school, got in trouble with the principal, and I told him what he could do with his school and all his teachers. And he told me what I could do with my, my knowledge, so it was We had a nice agreement. We shook hands, and I was kicked out. And uh, I started working at 16, and I started making as a plumber. Still am in the trade. It was the only job I knew what to do. They told me, put the wood in your hand and put the metal to the ground, and then dig a hole. And that's how you start making a living. But it opened me up. I didn't realize that back in the 50s, you know, you could drink. That was the ideal, acceptable thing in construction, drink as long as you showed up to go to work. And it felt like I have arrived. I didn't drink every day in the beginning. It was uh, just on the Fridays and Saturday nights. But drinking did for me what seemed like I missed something all my life as growing up as a child. I felt usefully whole, you know, and I could run to the beer joints with these old plumbers, nasty old guys, and I thought I was cool. You know, you just get up at the bar, nobody questions your ID as long as you're with a dirty bunch of people. You know, they didn't give a damn, and that was the lifestyle. You know, then you get in a few fights. That was nice. You know, I loved to. Drink, fight, and then you make up, shake hands, and you drink again. And, but this lifestyle, today you can't do that. You get shot too much today. So, you know, you had to. <laughs> well, when I grew up, it was, you know, who could hit the hardest, who could drop them the quickest, you know. And, and then you buy them a beer, you shake hands, you say, hey, that was a good punch. Yeah, not bad, man, you did pretty good. Next time, duck. You know, and you, and you could have all this justin, And then you get drunk, and then you get up at 5 in the morning, you get cobwebs are in your head, and by 10 o'clock you sweat it out, and swear to God I'll never do it again. At noontime, you run to the bar, get two frosted mugs, two hard-boiled eggs, and I was off to the races. And what a routine that was. But it seemed like every day I wasn't going to do it. But, boy, it comes 11 o'clock, I mean, i got to have something in my system. And two hard-boiled eggs and two frosty mugs. And, boy, that thing was, one was to cut the phlegm, I call it, because you know, in construction, you know, a lot of air gets in there. But the second one stayed down nice. First one I goggled, but the second one, woo. and then I'd be out all night with that. And I got married at a young age, to so the woman that. I said was my ex-wife. We had five kids in that marriage. We knew how to work the night shift. I didn't know how to work the day shift in the family, you know. That family stayed together mostly on her part. Even though she was a drunk, I was... I stayed home the best I could in the condition I lived under. That was my routine. And uh, so alcohol did for me, and, and I enjoyed it. If I could drink today and still have the fun I had without having the misery that comes with it, I'd still be drinking. I wasn't born... To be sober. That book tells me that some seem to have been born that way. And that line always gets me when we read it at our big book meeting Tuesday night. That's my one of my home groups every Tuesday night in Bowie. When I read that, some seem to have been born that way. And I was told, told through my uh, second sponsor, you didn't have a Chinaman's chance to be sober, Willie. You were born to drink. The book tells you right there. No matter what happened, you were going to drink. It was just matter when, time and place, but you were going to drink. And it's not going to change when you're sober, because you were born to drink. That God will get you sober, you know, watch the lower power, because he dwells in me every day. You know, I'm not responsible for my thoughts, just my actions today. And being sober today is the greatest gift that I have for myself. And it's good to be sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, My life has taken off in 20-some years, coming up on 21, and I can't begin to write a book. It would be... uh, Phenomenal! Of all the things that happened, all the little miracles. Even going through a divorce with that woman. One just telling the lady I'm with tonight. When I got my second sponsor, a guy named Champ that's passed away in Bowie. He was my sponsor for like 11 years, and he was a nasty old bastard. But he was good. You know what I mean? One of them guys that could punch you in the mouth and straighten you up. Thank you. I needed that. You know, we walked the right way. I loved that old man. Much as I hated him, I loved him. But he told me so many things that what's going to happen in my life in the future if I stay sober and every goddamn thing has come out not mean to cuss him. I try not to tell you that I wouldn't try to be cool tonight. So, God help me. Uh, but what I've learned through the steps with this man was uh, I never got away with my angles. You know, I always like to take a shortcut around the corner, and he would always put a stop sign there. He said, before you step over, stop, and we're going to talk about things. And I was going through a divorce, and I was a little over two and a half years sober. I was talking to Carol tonight in the parking lot, and, you know, I felt like I was being ripped apart. You know, they were taking my house. I had a lot of play with it, but I mean, it's part of the territory. And I owed IRS forty-some thousand dollars. You know, it wasn't my fault. I earned money, and I don't like to pay taxes. (laughs) They don't like to hear that, but I liked it, you know what I mean? So they were taking my house, and everything was going in my path, everything that I had worked my whole daggone life for was being taken away. You know, when you're going through a divorce, they come through your house, they just, we're going to show your house. And I go, oh, man. And I had a curfew, four to six. You had two hours to show that house. And at six, I'd get a nasty attitude, telling get, hang on, cuss now. Just tell me, get out the house. And that lady would say, what? I said, I told you, don't make me mad. Get out of my house. You had two hours. And that's how I was feeling like I was being raped with my clothes on, going through that divorce with lawyers. I even hated my lawyer. You know, I didn't... And I remember talking to Champ one night, was sitting on the parking lot, and I was a little over two years sober, and he had about 13 years at the time. And I had a pain in my chest that I never had in my life. That, uh, generally, when I got hurt, I would strike out and do some damage to somebody else to make the sides even. You feel the same as I felt. He said, how do you feel tonight, Willie? I said, I'll tell you what I feel like doing. I'm going to go to city of law. I'm going to burn that building. I'm going to burn that red Mercedes Benz. I'm going to light me a cigarette. And when the police come, I'm going to raise my hand and tell them I did. I said, because I've never felt this kind of pain without taking some revenge on somebody's ass. So he said, well, that's going to look good. See you in the paper. Willie, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, two and a half years sober, in jail, for burning a building, burning a car. What are you kids going to think about you? Is that a way to carry a message? And it got me thinking, you know, I said, God. I said, well, I've got to do something. What do, you, what do you think I should do? He said, well, a guy like you, I would suggest keep your hands in your pocket and your big mouth shut. And I said, man, what kind of stuff is that? He said, if you can do that, that's a lot of stuff for you. I said, well, let me tell you how I feel about this thing now. Let me tell you how a person at my knowledge knows about life. And I started cussing, you know, raising hell. I said, now you people have over 10 years in the program. I think you lose reality. you fly too far away. This is the the problem lies, right here in, on this parking lot. So i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get out of here tonight. You know what you can do with the program? Stick it. He said, well, i would make one more suggestion. Before you do anything stupid, because you're already dumb, you know, it gets your attention, them words, you know. I said, yes. He said, I'd go home and pray for these people. I said, you? I didn't talk to him. I just got in my truck about halfway home, and it's like getting sucker punched. You know, if you have a fight on the street, a guy hits you, you know, you don't really feel it until the next day you go to eat a sandwich and you can't open your mouth. (laughs) You're shoving the food in with a straw which you can't chew right. And I said, You know what? if you ain't right, and I'm wrong. And I remember I got home and I didn't want to do this. And I genuflexed. Because being a Catholic, guess what you do before you get into the, the pews? And you genuflex. And I genuflex real quick. And I said, God, F them all. And I went to bed. <laughs> went right to sleep like a baby next day at 7 o'clock, I had to be at my sponsor's house. And I go, and he looks through the window. He goes, oh, do come in. I said, what's the matter? He said, I've been watching TV. Nothing happened at all last night. Do you have some exciting news for me? <laughs> yes. Oh, let me get you a cup of coffee. Come on in. He, I got the coffee. He's pouring, he sat down. He's playing this big game with me. Go on. Oh. This must be exciting. Do tell me, please. I am just want to hear this. So I went home and did what you told me to do. I didn't hear you. Speak up. <laughs> I said, I went home and did what you told me to do, damn it. Oh, you and God? I, yes, me and God. Well, do tell me. How did it go? I said, I prayed. What, what, tell me. Uh, I said, I genuflected and told him to go after him and went to bed. And he went, great. <laughs> All right. Now I want to start now. He said, tonight, go home, two knees, stay longer, and clean up your mouth. God. I said, when are you going to let up? He said, when you start doing it right. So I thank God for the people I got in my life. You know, I hear things in AA now, don't talk to them, you know, they're a little you can't hurt a drunk. I ain't never hurt a drunk in my life. You can punch him in his mouth all day, and he'll get up and buy you a beer. How are you gonna hurt somebody? <laughs> but then you say you ain't got what it takes. Oh my God, he, he's so... Oh man, give me a break, will you? My sponsor never gave me a break. I thank God for that because I was looking for a break. I was looking for that easier, softer way, and he never let me off the hook. And as much as we had arguments, I showed up every day for ten and a half years. We're going to a meeting, okay? Get in the car. Shut up. I said, you know, i got about six years. You keep telling me the same damn thing. When are you going to let up? Say, said, when you learn something. Get in the car. Shut up. You're already ruining it. You're talking. <laughs> you know, and I, I can laugh at it today. But when you're taking that, you know, and I'm thinking, someday I want to be a sponsor. <laughs> I'm going to pass this on. <laughs> oh, God. So living in sobriety today, is uh, I've learned to have a good sense of humor about this thing. I take it very serious. Uh, Thursday night I had a chance, the kid I'm working with, he got seven years coming up, and he was telling me, he said, well, what's going to happen in my seventh year? I said, well, what happened to me was like that movie, The Seventh Year Itch. You're going to feel kind of flaky and go through this. It's going to be a lot of stuff you think you've covered in your past and you haven't covered it yet. But that's for you to find out, and it's just for me to give you the message. And you'll know when you get that itch and you can't scratch it. It's like buying a two hundred dollars shirt and you got the name tag and the collar, and you're going like this all night. Shirt sure, looks good, but you just got that little itch. And uh, he called me up. And he says, like, "Yeah, I got something. I need to share with you." I said, "Yeah, I've been waiting. I still live in Bowie. I haven't moved. Get your writing done." And he came over Thursday night. And he took the secret that he was going to take to his grave like I was. You know, I did mine in two and a half years. He did his in seven, so I'm not trying to brag about time zone, you know. He was just a little bit more dumber than I was. But (laughs) it was nice. He had uh, seven pages, and it was a powerful experience to go through. That's what this gift's all about, when you can sit there and relate. And and he was so nervous, he smoked eight cigarettes in an hour. I could relate to that, because I used to smoke eight cigarettes in an hour. I thought that was mild you know i was a chain smoker but when we shared that he was sitting at the table in the patio and he says are we going to pray i said you bet your ass we're going to pray all that stuff you got if we don't pray you're going to be lying when we pray you won't lie as much so he took a prayer break and he shared that and he felt good he cried i cried for me because he shared mine secret that I was going to take to the grave. And it was similar to what he had. It was amazing how God puts the rocks in my head that will match the holes in his. So God lined us up to do this. And just to watch him change in life. And I said, now you're going to have the freedom that you never experienced. You thought you was free for seven years, but you were dragging the cinder block. Now you can cut that damn string and you can walk a little bit freer. Your head will be taller. And I called him Friday morning because I was working outdoors this week. I mean, Thursday morning. Wendy came over. Let me get that. So Thursday morning, it it's a warm morning. I look up at the sky. So I called Neil. And I said, Neil, I'm looking up at the sky. And all I see is your fat ass. So you must have had one hell of a high day today. He <laughs> said, man, I feel like I'm flying. I said, well, you'll come down. But I can see your ass up in that sky. So when you come down, come on down to reality. But it was nice to hear the change in his voice and just from sharing these secrets. And our book tells us we're as sick as our secrets. And I'm a firm believer in that. And I think when I sponsor people, it's my obligation to push that area because I know nobody wants to give up a secret. We always got that little cubby hole. And I think what it says in the book, too, I interpret it, that I like English muffins and peanut butter. I love them. And if you don't like peanut butter, you can take a knife and scrape it off. But then the book says we have to get down to the nooks and crannies. Means I gotta take that peanut butter and take every little hole out of the English muffin. That's painstaking. That's what the book tells us. I've got to take my time and do a good job the best I can. I will never clean up the wreckage of the past, but I can work on it the rest of my life as I stay sober. I've seen a lot of people go out in this program and never came back in. Been to a lot of funerals from people who died sober and died drunk. And I've been a one-nighter, what they like to call. I never found a necessary to take a drink. I thought about it. I haven't smoked them goofy cigarettes. I haven't taken a mood-changing chemical. And for me, that's a miracle. As much as I wanted to do these things to make me feel good when I'm edgy, and I punched a lot of people in sobriety because that's the way I was raised, and it took a while to outgrow throwing punches. I miss it, but I'm an old man, but I still miss it. But I, I pray for them now. I say thank you, and thank you to me means the F word. Thank you. Instead of telling them how I really, really feel, I say thank you. Thank you. But at least I'm not cussing as much. And I don't throw the punch today. I go home, think about it, how to get in my car and go back down, and recorrect the situation that screwed it up. But I don't do them things today. So my mind has never got well. But in the 11th step, it says we get the brains back. In the 11th step, God talks to us through my brain. And being new at this, I'm a rookie, so it takes a while to get that God consciousness. Because uh, when God talks to me and I get these good ideas, it doesn't go with my mind. You know, my mind is a little warped in dark corners. But God is always nice and subtle, and that can't be true. That can't. That's too nice to happen. I have to go the other way where I'm used to the excitement and the danger. And when I go that way, I find out I'm wrong. When I call my sponsor, he really points it out that I'm wrong. And I should go the other way. And I still have a sponsor today. In fact, he was champ sponsor, so I'm still inbred with the family. You know, Jack's got about 34 years now, a good old man. And the smart as I think I am in AA, with all this time, you know, reading a book and move I can run a story by him. It'll take a half hour to 45 minutes every time because I'm running the, running the script. Uh, this is going to be good. He's going to agree with me. He has never agreed with a damn thing I come up with. And he gives me one sentence, how to shut everything down real quick, and I go, damn. I wasted all that time for this quick answer. you think i get smart and learn something. But next time, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get a better story. You know? And we laugh at it today. It's fun to do this here, because... I, it tells me how sick I can really be even in sobriety. I'm not that well. I'm not that well. But getting back, let me go back to the beginning when I got to A, I met a guy named George. He's from Baltimore. Edgar knows him. He used to be Ed's sponsor. a <laughs> little battle we have. And George was, a for me, when I first got in, he was a, a soft way but firm but this guy got me to pray, and I was raised Catholic, and I wouldn't pray at all. I went to church, and, you know, you're supposed to put your money in the box like you do in AA, little money. And when I grew up, <clears throat> they had the long stick in the basket, and they were shaking in front of you. When the pew, they go go, and these guys were nasty old men who collected that money. They were just mean looking, and he would shake that basket. And I just looked straight at the altar never put nothing in it because I wanted candy. So after church, I'd go to the candy store and buy candy. Of course, the other kids say, can I have something? I said, no, you put all your damn money in the basket. Now, I got candy. You're not going to eat none of my candy. So that's what I did all my life. I was very selfish on that. So when I got here, I didn't have nothing to do with God. I was in an orphanage. My father died. All, all the blame on God. And if there was a God, I wouldn't have to go through the stuff that I've been through all my life. And here I am in AA. I lost all my good drinking friends. Now I'm with a bunch of nuts. They don't know what they're doing. I'm going to have to sing at the goddamn airport and collect money and chant with a robe on. That was my whole theory. And I asked Jordan, I said, when do you get the badges you put on? You know, Willie's in AA and walk around, no, 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 no. He said, we don't do that. I said, well, God damn, you got to do something. You just don't do this. This is stupid. (laughs) He said, well, you're here, ain't you? I said, well, that's beside the point. I'm not stupid as you. I mean, you've been here longer. You know, I always had a smart answer with this guy, but he was cool, man. He was good. I couldn't get a corn on him. When I found out he had three and a half years, I had three weeks. So I'm trying to run a corn on this guy, and I couldn't do it. And we had some big debates, and uh, he told me one night we're leaving the place from a meeting, and I got in a big argument because I was a great arguer. Had a lot of opinions. None of them were any good, but I had a lot of them. And I gave him a tongue lashing because he needed it. And he walked away. He said, you'll never make it. And he left. Boy, I was pissed that night. I said, come back here. You don't talk to me that way. You know who you're talking to? You're talking to me. And he says, I'm out of here. You'll never make it, bum. And he got in the car and drove away. And I went home that night, didn't sleep, was up all night thinking how to kill him. <laughs> I mean, I was serious. If I knew where he lived, I went and burned his house that night, I believe. And I went to work, and I was a terrible day of work because I was so full of anger and resentment. Oh, I was mad. And I had to meet him at 5.30. You better believe I was there early that day. I was there like 10 after 5, and I was in that parking lot ready to punch him out. And here comes his raggy-ass car, and I'm going to kill him. And he parked the car, and he gets out. You sober, bum? I said, yeah, I'm sober. He said, well, that's a blanky-blank miracle. I said, you know, by the way, I want to finish up what we had the discussion last night. You still pissed me off. He said, come on, we're going to a meeting. Don't worry about that. I was all kidding. And I just didn't know what to do. He said, but, you know, you act the way you act. You still ain't going to make it. And he just, but I love the guy today, you know, even though we don't see eye to eye sometimes. And, and one night he really pissed me off in a meeting like this here at Unity. It was a big group. And I just was very outspoken back when you knew, you know, you just blurt words out because you have to get them out. All that noise up there. It's like having dance paintings. You've got to get it out. <laughs> <laughs> and I just couldn't wait to blurt it out. I just got tired of him yelling at me and telling things that just hurt my feelings. I said, you know what? You blankety-blank, George, if you ever get drunk, I'm going to be your sponsor. And the crowd was just like this. Same thing. And he looked at me and he said, Willie, thank you for sharing that. That will keep me sober the rest of my life. <laughs> and it, it, gets the, it gets the same response every time I share that with him. And every time my anniversary comes up, I'll call George and say, George, I'm still sober. Thank you. And he says, you're not going to be my sponsor this year. I said, I'm waiting. <laughs> but today we can have that nice Justin, what we call it in the AA. You know, two guys can – you can – feet off each other without getting a big resentment. And you know deep down that he loves me and I love him. That's the whole thing. You don't have to see eye to eye with him. But he got me to pray and that was the most amazing thing I ever went through. Took it right out of the big book. He said, Willie, you're not going to go far the way you're going. He said, I know you want to get sober and you tell me you don't want to drink. I hear all this crap. I heard it before. You need to start praying. I need a God of your understanding. And I said, George, I can do anything you tell me to do but I can't say the word God. And I'll be damned if I'm going to pray. And I was just defiant like that, like the book says. So one day he said, "We're going to try something different with you." I went to the desk at Unity, took a piece of paper and he got a pencil. He said, "I want you to get a god of your understanding." And he ran a little story that we were going to a god store. Him and I. And as we went through the store, the salesman came up and said, "Can I help you guys?" And George said, "Yes, we're here to buy a god for Willie." And the salesman said, Willie, what kind of God would you like? Pick it out and I'll go get it for you. So I'm looking at George for these answers. And he said, Well, write down what you want. I said, What do you mean? He said, Just write down. What would you want God to be? I said, Well, you've got to be friendly. He said, Write it down. I wrote down one friendly, loving, caring, understanding, powerful, forgiving, and a sense of humor. And George said, That's good for you. He said, Give it to the guy. So I'm down to you know, make believe. I mean, this guy's weird, man. So, okay. He said, let me have it. I gave it to him. He put Willie's God and he put the date down. He said, I want you to fold it out, put it in your wallet, and you got God on your hip everywhere you go. No more excuses. And I was dumbfounded by that. I said, damn. He said, Willie, you can't blame God now because you just got one. This is going to be your new relationship. So I would suggest you start praying on your knees with that. Now, what George got me to do was get me on my knees. And I'd be by myself at 1130 because our time was up at 11 o'clock and took a half hour to get home. i go in my bedroom and i get on my knees and I could not say God. But I was on my knees. And I said, all right, whoever you are, I'm not going to cuss on that. Cause I used to do a lot of cussing with God. And a lot of nasty words come out. But that's the way I was praying. I said, all right, I'm here. I was told to do this. I did it. I'm going to bed. Thank you. Come to bed." Then the next night I said, you know, I, didn't, I can't say that word God, but i got to come up with a name. So I used Tonto, the first one. I said, all right, Tonto, I'm here. That sounds funny. I was so laugh at that when I was doing this. I said, Yeah, it's something like a goddamn nut. So I said, okay, Tonto, I'm here. Thank you. I didn't drink today. Thank you. And I did what the sponsor told me to do. And good night, Tonto. And I go to bed. And the next night I said, well, I can't use that one. That sounds stupid. So I said, I used the Lone Ranger. So, and every night it changed. It changed everything I could put on as a cartoon. I changed every one of them. And then came November the 18th. It was a Friday. It was 11.30. And I came home with George and he gave me a good butt chewing again. And I told him I was praying and I told him what I was doing. He said, well, you're struggling. You got to let go. You got to trust God. You got to get into this. And I came home and I got on my knees and I said, you know what? I'm tired. And I wanted to drink so bad that night that my throat, you could feel them jugular veins pumping. I could just feel it. And I was pissed at everything in life. Nothing seemed to be going right. And I wasn't drinking. And I went to meetings every day, three on a Sunday, two on a Saturday, but I just could not grab this thing. It seemed like I was struggling. So I was on my knees and I said, all right, let me share something that I really feel about you, whoever you are. And it started coming out with F words. Everything was an F word. And the last thing I said was, if there is an F in God, you haven't done an F in thing for me. So if something don't happen tonight, go F yourself in this program. I don't recommend that prayer. (laughs) But that's what I had inside me that night. That's That's all I could muster up. And I was in my bedroom. I lived in an alcoholic house. We didn't have no carpet. Uh, we built this house, but we never finished it. it took 20 years to build it, 20 years never finished, never was painted on the inside, never had carpet. The furniture was made out of plywood, junk from dumpsters, cinder blocks under couches to hold a leg upright. And I was on the wooden floor and something in the room came over and knelt me up. You know, I always prayed on my heels like a cassock. You ever watch cassock? They generally put their ass on their heels to take a break. And something in the room put me up on my knees, put my hands together, and I felt the hand make my head bow. And the power flew right through my whole body completely. And my hands were like this, and I could not pull them apart. I was panicking, I started crying, and I'm thinking, man, what the hell, is what did I do? And I couldn't get up, I couldn't move, and it went right through me, and I felt every bone crack, and I was crying, sweating, wringing wet. The floor that I was kneeling on was saturated with water. It's like I was in a puddle. And what I had that night was an out-of-body experience. This is what happened to me, and I'm not trying to shake anybody out, but I seen this happen at my bedroom door. I was in and out, in and out twice in that thing, and then it went away, and I could pop my hands. Now, the room didn't light up like this because I didn't have no lights in that bedroom. I had a shade that was ripped, so you had a little bit of moonlight coming through the rip part of the shade. And there the room just kind of glowed a little bit. And on the other side of my bed was the man, Jesus Christ, about five was that young man, stand, sitting right there. And he was sideways. And I panicked, and my first thought was, I take him in one punch. <laughs> he wasn't that big. And then he turned and faced me, and he put his hands like that. And I looked at that guy, and boy, I swear to God. <laughs> Whew. <When> they, <clears throat> they talk about the steps coming together. One, two, and three came that night spectacular for me. That's what it was. That got my attention. And when I seen that hands that I've never seen on a human being, i seen material that I've never seen in this century, and I looked in his eyes and I've never seen a person's eyes like that, that I, as long as I've been alive. <clears throat> and then I really panicked. My thought was, man, everything I did is going to burn my ass. And I said, i got to hide. I'm gonna go under the bed, because that's what I did as a five-year-old child when I got scared, was under the bed. I slept that way when my mother would leave me alone, slept in the corner, put the pillow in front of me so the devil couldn't find me, or the boogeyman. And I had a waterbed. There's no bottom to a waterbed. You can't go under the waterbed. So I said, Well, I'll go under the blankets. And the next thought was, He already seen you. The next thought was, I'm getting out of the damn bedroom. And I ran to the kitchen and called George. And I said, George, you won't believe what happened. And I was panicking that night. And he said, all right, stupid, what would you do? I said, man, well, yeah, I went home and prayed, and I told him what had happened. And he went, oh, that's good. He started laughing. He, he took the book out, and he read something to me. I can't remember what he read, but I felt calm. He said, you're going to be okay now, Willie. You're plugged into God. You're on your way to sobriety. Just don't screw up and get drunk. Go to sleep. Call me in the morning. I said, wait a minute, don't hang the phone up. How can you sleep with a guy in the bedroom? He said, he's gone now. I said, no, nah, he ain't gone. God damn it, he's right there. I just seen him. How can I go in that bed and sleep? He's going to be standing beside me. For God's sake, you've got to be crazy. He said, he's gone. I have one similar to what you had. Your life is going to change. You're going to sleep good tonight. And I remember going down my old house, going down there, my back against the wall, tiptoeing down. And I peeked in the bedroom. Nothing was there. And I had a king sized bed. And you know, when you're married, you can have a king sized bed, but you only have an area. <laughs> I don't care how big that bed is, you've got an area, and do not cross that line. And my wife had left now for a year, over a year and a half. Yeah, I was still on my side. I was well-trained. I never moved to the other side, afraid I'd to get caught. And that night, I got in the middle of that bed and slept the whole night through without having a nightmare of being in a fight, being shot, being set on fire, or being killed. I've never had a nightmare. All my life I had these nightmares. I slept with a gun and a knife, and it wasn't because I was afraid. I was protecting my family. But I was petrified of the dark. And that night, November the 18th, I can sleep in a dark room in a dark house without one light on. Well, that was a miracle for me, and uh, my life has took off since that. And I've had many more experiences since that, and everyone has been uh, subtle. Some have been a spectacular experiences in praying. And I think the greatest one I have is when you can sponsor somebody and take him through the same formula that I've been through, and I watch that person change in my kitchen table. That is the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I am not that good, I'm just a drunken bum, but can take another guy. and you know, will sit down and watch him change right in front of me. If you had never had that experience, boy, you're, you're really cutting yourself short. I've worked with a lot of people, and I've seen some jump in this thing, and you just—I love flowers. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, from what I used to do to what I do now, I like cooking and flowers, and really probably getting too feminine at my age sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> But I sing to my flowers. I sing amazing grace and how great thou art. Just sing of a storm and the flowers love it. They be wilted and I'll be singing and I'll be, to my day. I think they clap for me when I sing. But this is what what happens. So when, when I do my flowers like that and when you get another human being, they do the same damn thing. You spread a little sprinkle of alcoholics Anonymous. Me, you put a little fire, in, and their ass will burn. You know, it just you see it start to simmer, and it goes, and, and you watch it, And then they start talking about God, and then they bring the experience back to me. You know, Willie, I prayed last night. I tried that. What happened? Man, God, you won't believe it. I said, ain't that nice? You can't explain it. You have to experience Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I read that book when I first got here. It scared me. I got to the park. You know how you read books. I never read the beginning. I always look for something dirty. You know, is any sex in here? <laughs> they had no pictures. And they told me to read the black, not the white, because y'all drift too far. And I got to the 58, how it works. And I was going, and come down and said, some are mentally, mentally in emotion. They can't make it. And I thought that's me. I'm screwed up in the head. And so when Ed said, he named this meeting Outright Mental Defectors. That made a lot of sense to me. It still does. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm at home you know, with all the nuts. You know what I mean? That's the way you get sober. But the readings today have a meaningful that I've never read in other books. Even reading that big book, we read it for 20-something years at this meeting. You know, and I think I get tired and I always pick up a new word. Some of you have a new definition of something and put a twist on it. And I say, God damn, that guy's only got three months. How the hell did he get that? I've never seen it. But this is what the gift is. Nobody's that good in this program. If you think you're that good, and go check your underwear, you're not that goddamn good. Ain't nobody that good. I'm a plumber. You know, when you're good, flush. That's how. That's how you find out if you're good. Toilet works. You're doing a good job. Okay. <clears throat> and getting back to what happened to my, I get to my ex-wife now. You know, went through a bit of divorce. I just want to share this because this was part of my experience. And. uh we became friends and through a Alcoholics Anonymous. I made my amend to her, and you know we got settled with the kids where we, we could have family things together, Christmas and Easter, with both of us being in a room and being civil to each other. And then she got cancer. And my lady, I was living with her, and I were together like seven years. And she got cancer, so both of them had cancer at the same time. So in support of my girlfriend, because she was a hair freak, you know, women love their hair. I'm not making fun of them, but, you know, if her hair gets out of the strand, boy, that's a no-no. And uh, when she blew her hair with chemo, I shaved mine because I thought I'd be it's a piece of cake. Don't worry about it. Just goddamn hair. But when I shaved my head, let me tell you what I did for two weeks. I wore a hat and never took it off. So hair did make a big difference. And I didn't know that until I experienced shaving my head. I wouldn't go out in the house, make sure you got the hat, make sure it covers your damn ears. You know, don't show them your bald. And then I seen her take her wig off, and I said, "Yeah, you know well, she can do that, let me take my hat off. So we started doing that, and it was nice. Now, I keep it in shape, but it's cooler now, it's easier. I like it better. But anyway, she had the cancer, my ex-wife had cancer. My ex-wife had went back out, she had about 20 years, and she got panicky with the cancer, it was a hell of a chest cancer, I mean lung cancer. And she bounced around between her in-laws and family, and nobody wanted her. And the sister called me up and said, Willie, we don't know what to do with uh, Sandra. You know, she's drunk. We don't know what to do. Could you help her? I said, I don't know. Let, let me call. Tell her to call me. So she called, and she said, Willie, I made a mistake. I got drunk. I was scared to death, blah, blah, blah. I said, I understand. I just need a place to stay. I said, I'll tell you what. You can move in the house. Let me check with Pat. If it's clear with Pat, you move in. You screw up one time and I'll bounce your ass out of here quicker than you came in. And she said, okay, I won't drink. I swear to God. So she moved in. Now, here we got two women, ex-wife and my girlfriend. Man, I went through hell. (laughs) Two queens and one king. I was outnumbered. So they were sick. I was a cook. I like cooking. People said, what would you put in there? It tastes good. I said, I didn't wash my hands. I did some plumbing today. I always always get their attention. (laughs) So I'm cooking, making dinner, you know. And I I say, "Okay, dinner's ready." And I'm serving them, you know, trying to be God of the being God of the cook. And I'm serving them. And one night they're not talking. Nobody's talking in the kitchen, and you could get the air was so goddamn thick. I had to get a knife to cut my way out of the kitchen. Nobody was speaking. So I went and got on my knees and I said, "God, what's happening here?" It seemed like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, cooking dinner, serving them. Everything was I, 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 I. I said, what's the message here, God? What i am doing wrong? And he said, and the message came in my head was, just cook the goddamn food and let them feed themselves. And I went, where would that come from? So I called my sponsor just to make sure I heard the right message. He said, well, just cook and leave it on the stove. Can they walk?" I said, yeah. Can they lift their arms? I said, yes. Let them serve themselves. Next night, they come home, did the cooking. I said, all right. All right, ladies. Dinner's ready. Everybody helped themselves. Man, they come charging in the kitchen, knocked me out of the way, got their food, started talking. I had to leave. The noise was so great in the kitchen. They never shut up until they died. Isn't that amazing? All I do is get out of the damn way. Blew my mind. I got to slam down again. I said, all right, God, good message. Good message. But both of them girls passed away, and, and what it taught me was uh, that I could get out of myself. And, you know, when I was married to this woman, I was the king. You know how guys are. If you love me, fix me a sandwich. <laughs> I'm watching my football game. Cut it diagonally, spread it, pickles on the side, chips in the middle. Soda with four ice cubes that far from the top. Put it there. When I'm ready, I'll eat. It's up with my roll. I loved it. <laughs> Don't work. <laughs> I come home from work, and Sandra was feeling bad. She said, I hate to ask you this. Would you mind going across the street? Wendy's. Burger King's over there, and they have like a Coke float, a Coke, something that they freeze, a freeze Coke, or something they had years ago. And I'm thinking, all this damn traffic, oh, my God, boy. Yes, dear, what would you like? One of them Coke freeze. Okay. Half hour later, I come home. I'm sorry, you had to go there. I know you're tired. You just come home from work. I said, That's no problem. I hairs just think, oh, I don't want it. Put it in the freezer for later. Hmm. Put it in the freezer. And this went on every night, and I got a payback for what I used to do to her, it seemed like. She didn't do it on purpose. It was just what she did. And, I, and I, So I learned a lesson on that. And it stopped being this goddamn king baby that I like to play the role. Very lonely job. Nobody wants to be around you. But when these girls passed away, Sandra was up here at a hospice place in Baltimore, North Utah. I was trying to make this meeting a couple weeks ago, and that's where I ended up in North Utah. That's all I knew in Baltimore. I told her, I know how to get there. <laughs> Same place. I stopped and panicked. Got a map. Couldn't find nothing. Went home. Typical drunk. Let me get the hell out of Baltimore. I was lost. But I went up there and started doing some volunteer work at a hospice place up there because I was so impressed with what these caregivers gave up that thing. I don't know how the hell I got up there, but I just went up there, and I just volunteered, and I stayed there for a year and a half, and I learned a lot about people dying with cancer, the strength that they carry a hell of a message. And I had a chance to share a lot of stuff from Alcoholics Anonymous there with them. I met a lot of wonderful people. There was a guy named Davis that made the Baltimore Sun or the Baltimore Tribune a few years ago. He took his case to the Supreme Court. He was a black guy worked for the railroad and took his case all the way up and won his case in the Supreme Court over some bullshit stuff, but he was right. Lester Davis was his name. And when he died, he gave him a good write-up in the paper. and I had a chance to meet him. He was a black guy, and we became good friends. He had no teeth, and I used to tell him dirtiest jokes I could come up with, but He loved me. <laughs> And one day he said, Willie, I want to be just like you. I said, you can't, Lefty, you're a different flavor. You know? <laughs> no, 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 I know that, but I want to be bald-headed like you. I said, really? He said, yeah, He shaved my head? So I shaved his head. And this guy cried when he looked in the mirror. And he, First, you know, you put a guy with no teeth, when He goes, I look just like Willie. Rub his head with oil. He thought that was the coolest thing in the world. But... Then people got me out of myself in a way that I can't explain it to you. It's just by doing service work up there. You know, I get tired as hell, but I went up there every Sunday for almost two years, and I started working a two-hour shift and went to a four-hour shift. Of course, you know how alcoholics are. We always double up everything. You know, I drank doubles, so I guess I do everything in doubles. But I've learned a lot in that thing, and then I finally had to pull away. You know, I was told that you're going to come tired, where you're going to get tired up there, you know. Be careful. Don't cross the line from sanity to insanity, almost like Alcoholics Anonymous. you got to live a little bit. So I served my purpose, and it helped me tremendously. I still support them financially, but I'm still impressed with how they give in that building up there. It's the cleanest place I've ever been in. You can eat off the goddamn floor up there. It's amazing. and The people that I've met and the nurses, I've never seen dedication. I've heard of this stuff, but I've never been associated until you work with these people. And I think, man, that was really impressive. A couple of years back the lady I'm with my boss was they were together. My boss had cancer. He died about coming up on four years now, ain't it? Something like that, it be four years. Yeah, thank you, Cap. And uh my boss and I grew up in school together and he was good cop, I was bad cop. You know, he was a guy who went home every night and I couldn't understand it. You can't have the same woman for thirty years. You gotta be stupid. <laughs> you gotta have all these women. And he go, I don't know how you do that. I said, I don't know how you do it. you got to be dumber than me. I'm having fun. But you got the same wife. And I didn't realize what he carried the message to me. You know, he was a straight guy. He got married and his vows took everything. And uh, I was just the opposite. But we got along good. You know, we'd have our ups and downs. And he passed away. And uh, Carol and I hooked up. It was amazing. I didn't want to take a ride. It was just one of the things that popped up a couple of years later that we went out for dinner. It's the first time in my life I've been in love with a woman. I don't want to make it sound like she's the best thing since sliced bread, but she's damn close to it. <laughs> but uh, when I first took her out, man, you know, I thought I was a cool guy. I know how to act. You know, I've been around with women. You know, I've been played around. <clears throat> and I stumbled the whole night. Sweated like I am now. Had stomach cramps because I thought it was the end of the month. You know, you get the cramps. You know what the hell to do. I couldn't function. Jesus. I went to work for the whole week and my head was just in Looneyville. I went and called my sponsor and I said, Jack, i got to talk to you. I said, I don't know. I met this girl. I don't know what the hell is happening. I said, but I can't walk. I, I, I get emotionally. I cry. I have all these mixed up feelings. And He said, you better come over here. I'm going to talk to you. So we sat down and I explained the whole story to him. He said, you know, Willie, really, I had that feeling when I was 20 years old, when I first met my wife. I didn't know it was going to be my wife, but these are the feelings I had. He said, but I was 20. I said, well, goddamn, Jack, I'm 65. I never had these goddamn feelings. I said, well, what's the answer? He said, you go smitten. I said, man, he's a, he's a farmer, yeah, he's an old farmer. I said, what the hell smitten means? He said, it's over. I said, "But goddamn. He said, this is what falling in love meant. He just never had it. I said, well, I'm glad I lived long enough to experience it. I don't know where it's going, but. I've never had this gift of feeling that way. And I look back at my life. I didn't do nothing wrong. I did everything right to get to that feeling. I had to try everything. And I'm glad God in His grace gave me an opportunity to experience what love is for, for another person. And it's amazing for a guy like me because I never drove my car without a spare. So, you know, if you have a girlfriend, you've got to have a spare. You know, you have, they might go flat on you. That was my... That was my, uh, my philosophy of life, you know. Yeah, you love them, but don't get too close. But my life has changed so much since I met her. And as I look even through Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, in giving, that as I work these steps and the principles in my life today, it's all through the formula of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I experienced with this lady was the first year of dating, I went through the first year of sobriety, emotional bottoming. I threw a tamper fit every three to four months, just stomped my feet, capouted. <clears throat> I wanted to get rid of her, I wanted to cut and run, because I wasn't getting my way, I had to go in the room and suck my thumb, I couldn't come out until I was done, you know, just like a child. And I kept thinking, I'm an old man, why am I acting that way? I didn't have the maturity in that relationship. The second year we're into it, it's a little bit better maturity level on my part. There's nothing wrong with her. She just won't do what I think she should do. That's, you know, that's, that's what pisses me off. you know. But that's me. But she does everything to what she's supposed to do. And I have to accept her as she is. Not as I would want her to be. And that was giving up that self-centeredness. You know? I like being self-centered. But I generally live by myself when I when, when I really like it. You know, Nobody's always around me. But with this relationship, I don't know where it's going, but it's it's been the, the best thing that happened in my life. I was married and... I thought I cared about that woman, but I only could care for my wife what I had inside. I didn't have what I have inside now, what I had then. It wasn't It wasn't in my makeup to do what I can do now. I didn't have God. I wasn't sober. I didn't have Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't have a sponsor. Now, you get all these things on your team, you're going to be a winner. You can stumble. I stumbled. I haven't done this program right. I've just went straight ahead with it. Like I said before, I threw a lot of punches, a lot of tamper fits, but I didn't drink, and I tried the best I could, and I've always prayed on my knees since November the 18th of 1986 twice a day. I haven't missed a night or a morning. Now, I'm not saying it kept me sober, but I'm not going to try missing it to see if it will keep me sober without doing it. So my time is up. And if you think I'm a little goofy up here, guess who spent an hour listening to me?